Today's scripture comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 31 to 49. Please follow along in your bulletins, in your Bible, or on the screen above. Hear now the word of God. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from his flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from his mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by his hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with the shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he, was a little more, that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Amen. Amen. Good to see all of you in New Mercy. I feel like it's been a while since we had our church retreat, and some of us uh, were away at uh, one of our pastor's wedding in um, Mexico, so... It's good to be back, and I'm sure a lot of you guys already just have this feeling of coming back since it's September. Uh, all the students are back into classes, all the teachers are back, uh, all the vacations are, I guess, kind of over, although this is the um, long weekend for many of us with Monday off. So once again, it's just good to be back, and we were so blessed for those of us who went to the retreat with Pastor Jason, who came all the way from California to speak about the theme of greater things. And for those of you who have been uh, joining New Mercy in the recent times, here at New Mercy, every year we have a theme. And this year's theme is greater things. And we explored it, we examined it from different angles. And today, we're going to do so again, looking at this theme of greater things. Greater things God has in store for us, but from perhaps a different angle. And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament narratives, some biblical characters from the Old Testament who God used 
uh, to attempt at greater things for the Lord. So today we get to this character named David, perhaps a story that you all heard. In fact, the um, scripture reader today um, came to me and said, why, we, why do we have to read all the verses? I mean, everyone knows this story, and it is true. But I guess I like to challenge us two things. One, do you really know the story? So we're going to really dive into the details of this narrative uh, of before and after and during David and Goliath's battle. And secondly, do we really know the story? Do you really get at the heart of this message? So as we look into 1 Samuel chapter 17, once again, uh, perhaps many times for you, let us invite the Spirit to come before us and join us. So let us pray one more time before we dive in. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for you are our God, you are our Savior, who deserves everything. We know all good things come from you, and for that we thank you. We thank you for this Sabbath as we rest, as we glorify you and think only about you. May you remind us how amazing, how gracious you are. Lord, be with us. May your spirit move us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we left off at the retreat talking about greater things through Pastor Jason, our guest speaker. And he quoted a missionary, a famous missionary named by William Carey. And William Carey once said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. William Carey grew up in a small, tiny, rural village in middle of uh, England. He grew up in a poor family, and he was trained as a shoemaker, a cobbler. And uh, all of a sudden, one day, in his young uh, years, he had listened to the message of Jesus Christ, and he had converted. He accepted Christ as his own Savior, and his life began to change. Um, he, many, among many things, it started with him actually picking up uh, books that taught him Greek. So he self-taught himself Greek. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, for those of us who went to seminary, I mean, maybe for me and the other full-time pastors, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, these are languages that you have to learn to read the original language in the Old Testament, New Testament. And it's, it's, unless you're gifted in language, it's difficult and it's time straining. But this young William Carey, uh, he began to just teach himself Greek and then Hebrew and Latin because he was he's hungered to understand God's word so much that he wanted to read the original text on his own. So he started teaching himself. And during his uh, time, as his passion and he's on fire for Jesus Christ, he also gets married. He finds himself a wife. And he has a daughter. And at the age of two, his daughter all of a sudden gets sick and passes away. And while this tragedy hits his life, his master, the one that was teaching him uh, how to uh, make shoes, uh, passes away as well. So he inherits this business. He's married. He has more mouths to feed. And his daughter all of a sudden passes away at age of two as he's passionately finding out more and more about Jesus Christ. His life is changing day by day, and um, 
the business that he took over begins to go bankrupt. So through all this, God calls young William Carey and says, I will use you to go on overseas missions. And he begins to pray and he begins to hear the word of God and he hears this one word, India. And if you've never heard of William Carey, he becomes the missionary that goes into India and spends 41 plus years of his life sacrificing everything that he has for the people of India to bring the gospel message to them. And for the time that he was there, I mean, he had crazy ups and downs. He, on his way to India, by that time, he's had three children. He has a fourth. His fourth passes away in India because of sickness. His wife actually becomes insane while he's in India and has to be hospitalized. So with so many walls for him to climb, he still says yes to the Lord and goes to India. And although statistically it says, history says that William Carey only converted uh, 700 Indian natives to Jesus Christ, what we see after his call to India for those 40 plus years is that he becomes what's known as the forefather of all the modern missionaries. And missionary after missionary after missionary who comes after him right, who goes overseas with their families and forfeits their comfortable life, all calls him their father, uh, the one that they looked up to as they go on mission trips. When we look at William Carey's life in 1792, as he becomes a young Baptist pastor who's just recently ordained, in May 30th of that year, 1792, he goes to a Baptist association meeting and he preaches front of all the elder pastors, older pastors, this message. And he, he, he titles this sermon, right? Expect great things, attempt great things. And as he preaches these words, as a newly ordained minister, uh, an elderly pastor stands before him and rebukes him in front of everyone and says, young man, sit down. You are too enthusiastic and you don't know what you're talking about. When God pleases to convert the heathens, he'll do it without consulting you or me. But even with these walls, once again, from people, from his you know, fellow brothers in Christ who says, what are you talking about? Going to India and forfeiting all that you've done. When God wants to do that, he'll just do it. Right? He had a conviction in his heart. I expect great things from our God. And he's calling me to attempt to do greater things for our Lord. And he steps into faith and he becomes almost from, you know, poor uh, rural village man to somebody that in history now we all look up to as Christians as we call him uh, father of overseas missions. And we like these stories, right? We like stories, these stories, for two reasons. One, because there's a, some kind of success at the end. There's a victory at the end of the story. But we genuinely like the stories also because it's a story about someone who was a nobody, an ordinary person, right? A shoemaker, right? Wasn't highly educated, wasn't rich, wasn't famous, they didn't come from a tradition of amazing missionaries or pastors' families. It's just ordinary man, right? 
who becomes amazing. We like these stories because it's about an underdog who ends up succeeding in, in, in God's ways. We like these stories like William Carey's because we see in the story an underdog, someone who's not supposed to win, who's not su- supposed to succeed, and yet he does. There's something deeply satisfying when a competitor thought to have little chance of winning a fight or contest after trial and error finally succeeds and wins. We like underdog stories. We like stories of Rocky and William Wallace. We like stories of Rudy and Linsanity. Like, we like the testimonies of people like Helen Keller and Nelson Mandela. Why? Because they were not supposed to win. And perhaps there's something about these ordinary men and women that we can identify with. We like the story of David's and Goliath's. Biblical sense, in the Bible, if you talk about an underdog story, right? Someone who was a nobody and changes his life around with one moment, a victorious moment. I mean, there's no better story than David and Goliath. And as I said before, everyone in the church or outside knows this story, David and Goliath, right? This puny little boy, right? A teenager who's never had... Never experienced a battle before. He wasn't a soldier. He was a poet. He was a musician, right? He was an errand boy for his father. He was a shepherd who comes before Goliath, a giant, wins. Not only wins for himself, but wins for his entire nation, Israelites. And not only that, he becomes from this nobody shepherd to the king of Israelites. So let's look into his life. Chapter 17, verse 1, we see David being introduced now in a different phase in his life. What's happening in in chapter 17, verse 1 is the Philistines, right? The enemies of Israelites are facing the Israelites' camp, the soldiers, with the valley in between them, right? Fighting and having a standoff for about 40 days. No one's really actually fighting. They're just looking at each other, right? Intimidating each other. But the difference was that Philistines had this man named Goliath. And here's what the Bible says about Goliath, right? The Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines, right? With the valley between them. And verse 4, chapter 17 of Samuel reads, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. It's interesting that the, the Bible used the word champion, or at least that's the translation of it, because we know that Goliath then was not the leader of the, the, the army, right? He was the champion because he wasn't the captain in his army. He wasn't leading the battle, but he happened to be the strongest and the best fighter among them. So they put Goliath in the front. And this is what Goliath looked like. He came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, verse 4, which equates to almost 10 feet, 9 feet 9. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, 
today's, is, it would be 125 pounds. So 125 pounds of armor just on his head and his body. And on his legs, it continues in verse 6, he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. And his spear shaft, just a shaft, was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His, his spear shaft alone was 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. So here's Goliath standing before his army. And here's the valley in front of him. And he's looking at all the Israelites in their tents and saying, All right, who's going to come fight me? You know? He tells his guy, he said, I got this. And it was actually normal during the battle scenes during this day that they would send their best fighter to the front. And if both parties agreed, their best fighters would fight. And whoever wins, basically wins the battle. It's one tactic that they use in order to not, you know, um, you know have more men killed. But also, it, it was kind of, you know, mano-mano, like alpha male, you know, dogfight. Like, we'll send our best, you send your best, and we'll take off all the armor, and we'll do hand-to-hand combat and see who wins, right? It's, the, it's their version of MMA fighting, right? So they bring their best, and here's Goliath, almost 10 feet tall, right? With armor of 125 pounds and spearhead that's over just 15 pounds just alone. And how do the Israelites respond? They're all hiding in their tents, trembling. And rightly so. I mean, who, who among us, if we were there, be like, all right, I'm going to go find Goliath. Even if you thought for some crazy reason, like David, that you can defeat him, just the thought of you losing would mean that your entire nation, your families, and generations to come could potentially become slaves of Philistine because you lost this one fight. Who among us would take that chance? I wouldn't. Right? Even if you're the best musician, maybe best athlete, best fighter, whatever the category was, if you had that much pressure on your shoulder, I don't know many of us, if not any, who would take this chance. And yet, David does. Goliath stands and shouts to the ranks of Israel, verse 8, why do you come out and line up for battle? I mean, why, why, why even bother coming out? He's laughing at them. And he's saying, am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then Goliath said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, verse 11, Saul, the king of Israelites at the time, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And then enters David, verse 12. Now David was the son of Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. And Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul already to the war. So they're already in the camp, right? And David was the youngest. And the three oldest follow Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem and to tend to Saul. What does that tell us about David? David's a young boy, 
He's the youngest of the eight sons that Jesse has. Three oldest of his brothers already at war, facing Goliath and trembling in the tent. And it says that David goes back and forth. So at home, he's an errand boy for his father. He's the youngest. He's like, hey, go do this, go do that. He does it for his dad. And he's a shepherd. He tends flock of sheep. But when he comes to Saul, the reason why he's going back and forth is already by then, Saul had already, quote-unquote, hired David, young David, through his servants because they found out David is a poet. And he's a great musician. So when he's with Saul, he's writing poetry that we see in Psalm, Book of Psalm, and he's singing to the king. And at home, he's a little errand boy that his father, you know, gets him other various jobs to do, and he's a shepherd boy. So his father says, David, I need you to go and check out what's going on because, you know, your oldest brother's at war and I don't really know what's going on. Why don't you go to King Saul and do what you need to do there, but take all this food with you and go to your brothers and find out what is happening. So David says, sure, I'll go. And this is what we read today in today's passage. In fact, right before what we read in verse 31, what happens is he goes. And he sees King Saul and says, hey, I have all this stuff for the, some of the Israelite army members, but also my brothers. Can I go to the battlefield to give them the food? Of course, he, uh, the permission is granted, and he goes. And he gives the food, and it is does. Obviously, he finds out what is happening, that there's a man named Goliath, almost 10 feet tall, shouting back for 40 days, and Israelites can't do anything, and they're trembling in fear. So he's asking them, hey, what's going on? Who the heck is that guy? Why is he yelling and screaming at us? And how come no one's going out to fight him? And of course, his brothers and his Israelite, you know, members in the army are saying, yeah, this is, I don't know how we're going to win this battle. You know, I don't know what King Saul's thinking, but we don't know what to do. And David steps up and says, hey, I can take him. Sounds like an insane man, like a little boy coming before all the men, grown men who were trained to fight, right? It's like a little boy who comes and says, hey, I can defeat that MMA fighter, champion guy. I can just take him. <laughs> you're like, are you kidding me? We're all trained fighters, and you're saying you're going to go defeat this guy, right? And so, as we would expect, we says right before verse 31, we see his oldest brother who grabs David by the ear and drags him to the tent and he starts scolding him. He yells at him. It says in the Bible, he was so angry at David. He said, what the heck are you doing? You don't think we know what we're doing? Did you see that guy? Right? Our whole entire nation's history is on the line and you're going around basically asking, hey, what happens if you defeat him? You know, what will King Saul do for the man who defeats this guy? And then basically alludes to the fact that he can defeat this Goliath. See, if I was David's brother, I would be angry and embarrassed as well. Right? So his older brother, like, basically kicks him and says, get out of here. Right? But this word travels fast to King Saul. So King Saul calls David... Not to sing to him this time, but ask David, hey, I heard you're willing to fight Goliath. Now let's pause here for a sec. There's only two scenarios here. King Saul is either crazy 
because he's thinking, ah, you know what? Uh, what the heck? Let's just take a chance, right? He's become insane, or two, he's become so desperate that he has to take a chance with anybody who's willing to fight Goliath, right? And there's a slight chance, some commentators say, that perhaps he had this lingering hope that David still is man of God and can defeat Goliath. The reason I say that is the background of Saul by this time when it comes to chapter 17 of Samuel is that, that Saul was chosen as the king as Israelites. See, Israelites didn't have a king before, but all the other foreign nations did. So Israelites started calling out to God and says, we need a king. We need a leader. And God says simply, I am your leader. I am your king. And they say, but everybody else has kings. It would, we would feel much more secure if we had a king ourselves. So God says, ah, fine. Do what you want to do. And then Saul becomes the king. And see, Saul was with the Lord. God was with him in the beginning. <laughs> But by the time we get to chapter 17, Saul's old. He has left God's ways. He doesn't fear God anymore, and he's doing things on his own. So by this time, we know that he has lost faith and hope in what God can do, even though he was so victorious over his reign of kingship because God was with him. He forgets. So... It's not that he sees David and says, yes, you're right. You have faith. Let's go with you. If anything, is either insane or desperate or there's some little tiny, tiny little hope left that perhaps God can use David. We don't know. But crazy as it sounds, King Saul says, okay. <laughs> it didn't take much convincing, did it? David says, hey, I can take him. Uh, you're a little boy. How can you defeat 10 feet Goliath, right? And David goes, well, I'm a shepherd, right? <laughs> I'm a shepherd, and I have the sling, and I take out bears and lions when I protect the sheep. And King Saul goes, okay, that's good enough. Let's go with that, <laughs> right? We don't really know why or what's, going, what's happening in Saul's head. But Saul starts taking out his armor, right, and starts putting it on him, his bronze helmet, and and one thing we know about Saul is Saul himself was a giant among the Israelites. He wasn't 10 feet tall, but it says when he becomes the king of the Israelites, the biblical description of him physically is that he was shoulder above all other Israelite men. So we know he's huge, right? See this tiny little David boy. So he starts putting armor of Saul on him. I mean, imagine what Saul's thinking. Saul's like, what the, right? He's like this probably with, like he can't even move. And he's a shepherd. When he fights with the sling, he's free. He uses his speed to his advantage, right? So he puts this on, and what does the Bible say? It says it, he knew this wasn't him. He knew himself well enough to say, King, I appreciate your help. I appreciate your gesture. But no thanks. I'll go with what I know. Sling and few rocks. And to this, Saul says, okay. <laughs> Imagine if you were the Israelite soldiers watching this or the servant of king allowing David to represent Israelites and fight. 
I mean, imagine if you were his brother. What would you be thinking? Right? You, this is suicide. This is a suicide mission. You would curse King Saul because you'd be like, you have gone insane. And you would be so angry at this little boy. He's like, what are we doing now? It's better that I just go and, and fight Goliath myself. But God blesses David. And David goes. Not with Saul's armor. Not with Saul's sword. Not with many men around him. He goes alone. And he kneels down by the valley. And he begins to pick out which stones that I should use. And this is where chapter 31 takes place as we just read today. The image is this little boy leaning down, kneeling. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't say he kneeled down. I mean, how else are you going to pick up stones in the valley, right? So I just imagine he's kneeling down by the valley. He's picking out stone by stone, feeling it with his hands. And in his own calculation, figures out which ones to pick, which ones to drop. And he picks five smooth stones, puts it in his pocket, and he goes to the battlefield to face Goliath. And Goliath, as we expect, as we all know, how does he greet him? Right? He says, Am I like a dog that you just come with the stick? You think you can, you think you can defeat me, you little boy? And, I mean, imagine you're Goliath. You're like, wow, this whole nation of Israelites and the King Saul has really gone nuts. Right? So, normally what would happen is you would all take off your armor and these two men would come to the front and fight hand-to-hand. Right? That was kind of the, the battle norms, the regulations. But I'm sure Goliath thought, what the heck? Bring your sling and the rocks. I don't care. Right? He's like, I'll fight you. So Goliath comes. He's laughing. He's pompous. He knows he's going to win this battle. And everyone around him, behind Goliath, in front of him, believes this as well. Except David. Why? How does this little boy kneel down Pick out five smooth stones. Imagine if you were him picking up those stones. What would you have been thinking? Whether he's anxious or nervous or fearful, deep down inside, he must have felt some kind of trust that he's going to win this. He knew at gut that no matter what happens, God is with him and therefore he's going to win. And so therefore, he not only expects great things from God, he attempts at the greatest things he's ever done up to this point. That looks insane and crazy to everybody around him. But he attempts to pick up the stones and goes to fight the giant. And we know how the story ends. Right? The underdog David defeats Goliath with one blow, with his sling. We generally like the little guy stories, the underdog stories. Why? Because often we identify with the underdogs. We identify with the Davids of these stories. 
Why do we still say we like the little guy? We want our movies to be about David. But we spend, ironically, our lives trying desperately to become like Goliath. Don't we? We love the story. We love the underdog stories. We look at them. We, we see them. And, and we, we experience it in our lives. And we're like, yes, you're nobody who becomes everything. We like these stories, but yet actuality, how we live our life, the irony is that we try our best to become like Goliath. We want to identify with David, yet so much of us, really, if you were to be honest, we want to become like Goliath. We think it's quaint and clever that David got by with five smooth stones and sling, but we spend our own energies piling up swords, spears, and javelins. We admire the fact that David went without Saul's armor and sword, but just look at our car, just look at our houses, just look at our jobs that we want, and look at our country. We beefed everything up, right, to look like Goliath. With so many safety features, security, and prosperity that we can hardly move around them. Think for a moment. Why is a degree from top universities or jobs from top companies so coveted by us? Because it gives us a chance to become Goliaths. It gives us the armor. It gives us the weapons. It gives us the respect. It gives us the honor and acclaim. All the things that Goliath had, not David. And that's the tyranny, ir- terrible irony of our life. And you know what happens in David's life? This terrible irony overtakes him as well. At this moment, as we read in chapter 17, he's this little boy, the underdog, who only trusts in God, has faith in the Lord, and expects great things, and attempts to do great things, and deep down inside, he knows that he can't win this battle without God. And yet, when he becomes the king of Israelites, the irony overtakes him as well, just like it does in our life. And he strives to become like Goliath. He collects things of Goliath. He collects his own javelins and spears and money and wealth and power and fame. And he starts to sin and fall away from the Lord. Because that's who we are as human beings. We want to be like David. And yet, if we see how we make decisions in our life, we are more like lies. How many of us, when we read this story, we say, yes, David. Yes, I'm you. I'm going to be you. I have all these fears. I have all these anxieties of these, my own Goliaths, whether it be your career or money or fame or or." You know, your spouse, whatever it is, your children, we have these fears and anxieties that are in front of us, and we say, Yes, I'm going to be like David. I'm going to defeat these fears and anxiety to get what I want and to get where I want to go. Yes, we are to be like David. Yes, we are to identify with David. Yes, we have to expect and attempt at great things. That is one part of the message of the story of David and Goliath. But, but, if you miss this point, if you miss 
the fact that the story actually flips on us by reminding us, you know what? At the end of the day, you and I are not David's. If we were to be in the story, we are not David. We are more like his brothers. We're more like the Israelite soldiers. We're more like Saul who have walked away from the Lord, who forget how amazing God is, who worship. Perhaps we, we call ourselves Christians and perhaps we're ready for the battlefield. We have all the armor. We know what to do. We know what to say. We know what to say. But when we get to the battlefield, to that one fight that we have to win, where we have to take leap of faith, we're not David's. We're like the rest of them. The flip side of this story is that, yes, let's become like David's congregation. Let's let's attempt at great things for the Lord like David. But unless we realize first and foremost that there already is a David in our life, the Savior, whom when we were trembling in our own tents, when the fear and the anxieties were getting the best of us, when the Goliaths of our life stand before us and even their shadows we're scared of, we already have our Savior who went before us and won that battle, who died on the cross on our behalf, who is victorious, who has defeated sin and death and resurrected. He is our David. When you can fully acknowledge that first, only then can we become or even just attempt to live a life like David. Do you have fears? Are there anxieties in your life that is taking over your life? Let's pray. Let's ask God for faith, the leap of faith that David had, but Let's acknowledge first, Lord, thank you for your God that has already, is victorious in my life. That when you move, all I have to do is follow and trust in you. Only then can we taste the victory that David tasted. We know logically, I think, why God put David in this scenario. Not somebody who's so well-trained, not somebody with amazing weapons. Not somebody with amazing fame already. Why does God use this mere boy, teenager, with five stones and a sling? It's to remind us that you and I don't win the battles. You and I don't win the battles. There'll be Goliaths and Goliaths and Goliaths after in our life. Over and over again, things that will overcome us. But when you're trembling in fear, may you be reminded that ultimate, ultimately, there is Jesus Christ, the Savior, who has already won the battle for us on our behalf. And our job is to acknowledge that and follow after him. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you.